Can a handshake transform a region? For the first time in seven years and after long years of tension, Saudi Arabia and Iran have decided in March to normalize diplomatic relations. Weeks later, the Saudi and Iranian foreign ministers met face-to-face and were shaking hands. The landmark agreement entails patching up the rift by reviving a security cooperation pact, reopening embassies within two months, and resuming trade, investment, and cultural accords. The China broker deal could lead to a major realignment in the Middle East. It represents a geopolitical challenge for the United States and a victory for China. Are we anticipating a new Middle East, and how is this agreement going to remake the region? I'm Ismail Na'ar, and this week we're looking at how Saudi Arabia and Iran were able to finally reach the negotiating table, and what the thawing of ties means in terms of implications for the wider region. Before we start, if you want to get all the latest episodes as soon as they come out, then just hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. In 2016, Riyadh severed ties with Tehran after protesters raided Saudi diplomatic posts in Iran following the execution of a prominent Shiite cleric in the kingdom. It was only one of many issues between the two countries. There was already tension between both countries as in the previous year, a Saudi-led military coalition intervened at the request of Yemen's internationally recognized government after Iran-backed Houthi rebels seized the capital Sana'a in 2014. Since they broke off diplomatic relations in 2016, Iran and Saudi Arabia have regularly denounced each other. Their long-time rivalry in the region has had implications and conflicts across the Middle East, from Iraq to Lebanon and the wars in Syria and Yemen. But that all changed last month. In nearly a decade, the first foreign meeting between long-time rivals took place last week, embarking a new era between both countries. The deal includes the resumption of flights between Saudi Arabia and Iran, the reopening of embassies and consulates, bilateral visits, and the granting of visas for citizens of the two countries. Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan said the resumption of diplomatic ties between Riyadh and Tehran comes as part of the kingdom's vision of preferring political solutions and dialogue and its keenness to uphold this in the Middle East. At the end of the talks, we reached a conclusion to start a new chapter after seven years of breaking off relations between the Islamic Republic of Iran and Saudi Arabia. While considering the matters of the two countries and the security and future of the region, to prevent meddling from extra-regional and Western states and consistent meddling from the Zionist regime in the region. That was Ali Shamkhani, an Iranian two-star general who's the head of Iran's Supreme National Security Council. His initial signing of the agreement with his Saudi counterpart in Beijing was an indication that Tehran is serious about rapprochement. But a deal toward reconciliation did not happen overnight. Dialogue began in early 2021 in Baghdad, the only publicly confirmed venue for the negotiations until the agreement to resume ties was announced in Beijing. Although Saudi Arabia and Iran thanked both Iraq and Oman for hosting previous talks, Muscat has never publicly confirmed doing so. But according to Sanam Vakil, the director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, and who's written extensively on Gulf politics and on the future trends in Iran's domestic and foreign policy, Iran had to compromise more on its foreign policy to sit at the negotiating table on the back of its turbulent domestic situation back home. 
Well, certainly there's been momentum towards the deal now uh, for the past year. As you know, there have been a number of quiet discussions taking place behind the scenes. Uh, but I personally think that Iran was the bigger compromiser in this situation. And I think it comes on the back of Iran's protests, which caused a cascade of challenges in the international community. The protests were very strongly supported, particularly in Europe, but also in other Western capitals, resulted in um, sanctions, further sanctions on the Islamic Republic. And the optics uh, very much shifted um, where there was pressure from domestic populations um, against the Islamic Republic. And I think if you add to that Iran's decision to support Russia in the war in Ukraine, you know, these two uh, put a lot of additional pressure on the Islamic Republic. So showing a willingness to de-escalate and to reduce tensions with the Saudis, I think was designed to lower the tension um, for Tehran. For the Saudis, the writing's been on the wall towards reconciliation for quite some time now. Saudi Arabia's Prince Faisal bin Farhan hinted during a panel discussion at the World Economic Forum earlier this year moderated by the Nationals Editor-in-Chief, during which he summarized Riyadh's changing foreign policy in the region. We have seen a simmering down of some of the conflicts of the region. There are moments of reconciliation, <clears throat> some conflicts remain. How would you assess this moment in the Middle East? Well, uh, I'm going to choose to be very optimistic about this moment in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, the theme of uh, this uh, session, battleground or meeting space, I think the Middle East is proving to be very much the meeting space of the world right now. We are in, a, in the intersection between East and West. Uh, we have uh, uh, clearly taken a decision to be a bridge uh, for the East and the West. And there is a lot of positive activity going on in the region, even with some of the challenges that we continue to face. We have uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, for instance, is the world's fastest growing economy in this year. But uh, beyond that, what uh, we are doing with our partners, among them, for instance, Iraq, Jordan here at the table, but others in working on interconnectivity, whether it's on electricity, whether it's building trade, investment, etc., there is a true spirit of cooperation building in the region. And I think that spirit of cooperation can be infectious and can also help to resolve some of the still existing differences and conflicts in uh, the region and beyond. So, you know, when we uh, talk about uh, our relationship, for instance, uh, with some of our neighbors, we say, you know, we always say we are focused on uh, investing in our future, in building our developmental path and building a pathway to sustainable prosperity, not just for the people of Saudi Arabia, but for the people of the region. And that's why we want to work with everybody in the region in that direction. And I, you know, the sense I get when I talk to my colleagues and when I talk to uh, even people in business, etc., is that there is a real energy in the region. And that energy is, I think, noticed also by the wider international community. And that's why you see uh, uh, engagement from countries all over the world, from multilateral, uh, multinationals all over the world, uh, trying to be part of that energy. So I, I think we are at a very important moment in our region. And I'm going to say a very optimistic moment for our region. And for decades, Saudi Arabia's foreign policy has been relatively predictable. But Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman upended those expectations when he began rising to power in 2015, intervening in Yemen's civil war, cutting ties with neighboring Qatar, and countering the rise of political Islam and the Muslim Brotherhood. Riyadh recently demonstrated a more pragmatic approach, mending its rift with Qatar, easing tensions with Turkey, and pursuing peace talks in Yemen. Here is Kristen Diwan, a senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. 
Yeah, I think you've hit on probably the two key points there. Um, we've definitely seen across the board that Saudi Arabia is really prioritizing its own domestic transformation right now. Um, we know that that's a really big project, very ambitious one um, that requires a lot of foreign investment, uh, requires a lot of their own investment, and requires really stability for them to to move forward in this this economic and and social transformation. At the same time, I think they're probably have, have been reading uh, a number of different uh, positions, especially that the Americans have taken uh, that, you know, raise some questions about how well they'll be able to stand up to the Iranians without, you know, having their own conversations with, with them and, and trying to get at least some of the most positions that they're the most vulnerable on into a window where they can discuss them and, and maybe take them off the Iranians' plate. Um, this would be you know, of course, any any attacks on on Saudi Arabia directly or through proxies, most notably as well than the the conflict in Yemen, which I think um, Saudi Arabia is really eager to see the the back of that conflict and and is willing now to to make some sort of agreement with the Houthis as long as they can preserve their border and keep uh, missiles from coming across there. Sanam Vakil seems to agree with Kristen Diwan's point but says it may take a longer time frame than observers expect. I think that Riyadh has been for a few years now prioritizing um, its a d- domestic economy and, and seeks to lower the regional temperature uh, in order to guarantee a more stable investment environment in the region. And for a few years, actually, there has been a shift where Mohammed bin Salman um, has prioritized or supported efforts to uh, draw down the war in Yemen. Um, there, we saw the Al-Ula agreement. We've seen rapprochement between Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Um, and this is in addition to all of the flurry of de-escalation that we've seen among other countries as well. Uh, so I think this shift is very much driven towards Vision 2030 and um, focusing on uh, this sort of Saudi-first domestic policy that is, of course, tied to uh, less regional pressure and tensions. I would just say, though, that um, just because the kingdom has decided to directly deal and directly manage its relationship with Iran, we shouldn't assume that the kingdom is not going to equally, over time, seek to de-escalate with Israel on a public platform. And that just requires a bit more of a complicated uh, negotiating environment for the kingdom. The issue of Palestine is not as easy to walk away from. And because of the optics of domestic politics in in Israel today, the hope of a Saudi-Israeli reconciliation is slightly tempered. But I think that over time and with investment from external actors, including the United States, but also Riyadh and Israel itself, I think that they will also get there. Another implication of the Saudi-Iran deal was the news of Beijing's role in brokering it. Both Saudi and Iran's welcoming of China's mediator role alarmed foreign policy hawks, especially in Washington, D.C. The United States has described the China-brokered normalization deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran as a good thing, despite the message it may send about its waning influence in the region. Kristen Diwan has described the American posture as a bit curious. Yeah, the American posture has been a bit curious. Uh, the Biden administration 
And you can sense some real sort of ambivalence in it. And I mean that in the classic sense of ambivalence, kind of torn in both ways. I, I think the participation of uh, China in the agreement is is definitely concerning, uh, just in the sense that it really does show that China's stepping up in a more strategic way um, in the region and points more clearly to the fact that, you know, the United States is not going to be the only global player at that very high level. On the other hand, I think as far as some of these moves, definitely the move in Yemen, that's been a top priority of the Biden administration to see some progress on the Yemen front and ending that war and helping those parties come together. So I think they're quite pleased with that. And I think overall, the agreement is not concerning on, on those sorts of levels. And even with uh, Saudi Arabia starting to kind of de-escalate with Iran, I think that could also be welcome for the Americans. Um, I think where they'll run into more problems is um, if there does start to be more sort of talk of investment or breaking sanctions that the United States has against Tehran. Um, and of course, the U.S. is going to remain very vigilant in, in what China is doing in the region. The recent reconciliation process between Iran and Saudi Arabia is just one of several changing dynamics in the region. With Syria, Saudi Arabia has also been silently pushing for a possible vote to reverse Syria's suspension at the Arab League. As of today, April 14, GCC leadership, including Egypt, Jordan and Iraq, will meet in Jeddah to discuss the possibility of the Assad government returning to the Arab fold. Another sign of how fast things are moving, Riyadh will also play host to the next Arab League summit, which is normally held in November each year, but has been moved up to early next month. The war in Yemen seems like it's ever closer to a political solution as well, with the Saudi ambassador to Yemen visiting Sana'a with a delegation from Oman on the 9th of April to revive a truce with the Houthis and reach a comprehensive political solution in Yemen. This was Beyond the Headlines. I'm Ismail Na'ar. Thanks this week to Sanam Vakil and Kristen Diwan. This episode was produced by Dua Farid and Arthur Edison. If you want all the latest episodes as soon as they come out, then just hit subscribe in your podcast app.